Thank you. Hello, friends, and welcome to another Accidental Tomatoes podcast, live from the Wild Goose Festival. My good friend Josh Scott is here. This is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are trying to find faith and spirituality outside of the walls and the fences of the institutional church, and no one better, in my <laughs> mind, than Josh Scott for this Wild Goose conversation. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I w- I'm putting in a petition that we rename this the Sweaty Goose. The Sweaty Goose, um, all right. Well, nicer. we got the Thirsty Goose is now the beer tent. That's so right. <laughs> maybe the Sweaty, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop that a little bit. We'll see where it goes. So, yeah. So, Josh, um, you were with us uh, on the podcast just when you released your, your brand new book, uh, Bible Stories for Grownups. I, how's it going so far, man? You know, it's been great. I've been doing a book tour. Um, and the Flannel Graph the Tour. The Flannel right? Graph yeah, Tour. Yeah. <laughs> If you grew up on flannel graph like I did, um, <laughs> and it's been great. I've been really so far all over the country, and um, it's so interesting how so many people, regardless of their denominational tradition or you know where they are geographically, have similar experiences of the Bible. In that, mm. for so many of us, we were taught how to read the Bible at a young age, and we were told this is it, this is how you read the Bible. And if you change it, question it, whatever, it's unfaithfulness. But in every other area of life, we're taught to learn and grow, yeah, right? Like yeah. You don't just start with letters. You go letters, and then you go words, and then you go sentences and paragraphs, and you're off to the races, or you learn two plus two, and you don't stop there. I wanted to stop there because I hate math, but <laughs> for people who are good at it, you add letters in there. It, it, you do algebra. Like there's this, So there's this thing within, I think for lots of us who grew up Christian in America, um, where there was sort of this, hey, don't take this too far. Don't, right, right. don't rethink it. And there are lots of people now who are tr- interested in rethinking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, I think there's 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 certainly this deconstruction kind of movement that's going on. And that's that's not always the most helpful language, but it's the best language I think we, we have um, in common right now. Um, it, which kind of reminds me, like you start the book with like, probably one of the first Bible stories that any of us ever learn, right? The, the Noah's Ark story. And um, I, lo- I love how you kind of open that chapter with, like, this is the worst story we could be teaching our kids, right? <laughs> you want to unpack just a little bit of that? And then- yeah, I mean, so I've been a pastor for 20 years. And when we started having our kids, everybody wants to be the first person, I think, in the church to give their pastor's kid a Bible. Um, it's like a contest and all of those Bibles have on the cover a picture of, you know, the ark and there's Noah and there's all these animals and they're smiling and there's a rainbow and it looks like everybody's having a great time. And then you just remember the whole genocide part of like everybody else is dying as this happens. And so, you know, what a, what a weird thing to paint on the nursery uh, in your church or in your house. But at the same time, I think that story, you know, there's this one impulse, especially among Christians, um, to say that story is just, you know, ancient and it does, you know, it's just kind of blah, kind of right, right, barbaric. Just take it for what it's worth and yeah. It's like, don't even fool with it. When actually, I think that story in its context and culture is telling something really powerful. And I I don't mind to talk about it as long as people still buy the book. Yeah. and that is, you know, when you read the story of Noah, the, the reason given in both of the sources, there are two Noah stories that have been kind of crammed together. Right. Right. They're two different sources, but both of them sort of imply it's human wickedness, but specifically human violence that is the problem. And when you see, I mean, it's ancient cosmology, right? So the windows of the heavens open 
and the waters come, and the, and the deep opens up and the waters come up uh, because in creation God has tamed the chaos right. by putting the sky and the ground and it's sort of like human violence is undoing creation right 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 and I don't I can't think of a better story for 2023 when human violence to the planet is quite yeah. literally undoing creation when in the United States of America, we own more nuclear weapons than it would take to blow up the whole planet, which just seems to me to be the silliest thing. Yeah. Like, at what point is what, what is enough enough? Like, it, t- it would take three to destroy the whole planet or whatever. I'm making that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. We have like 452. Like, do we just want to be the last one so we can get credit on the way out? Like, I don't understand. We, we're at a very critical point on our planet. And I think the the Noah story actually has a lot to say to us today. It's just the way Christians especially have tended to read it, turns it into sort of this, well, there's this wrathful God who wants to destroy everything. No, there's there's there are these human beings who are quite literally undoing creation. Right, 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 right. And so there's this there's this picture of how things actually get mended back. So it's it's not so much I think so, so many of us have been presented with that story as sort of like, you know, a left behind the you know the, the Hebrew <laughs> scriptures version right yeah. of the of the left behind novels, yeah. um, but it's really more a story of how how does God continue to make things whole even as we're screwing it up, you know? Yeah, and when you read it within its context, I mean, it's responding to something, right? It's responding right. to things like Gilgamesh, which in in stories like that, the reason the gods destroy the planet is not because of human violence; it's because of human noise. They're just too noisy. And we got to quiet them down, so let's just destroy them all. Any and parents feeling that? <laughs> I, I plead the fifth. Uh, but the, the reality is, you know, we've turned that into, um, if you take it in its context, the story is actually, no, no, no the, the, the gods aren't finicky, and they're not just looking at, like, God is quite literally res- like dealing with the fact that humans are destroying everything. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to note, too, that God in the Bible, Hebrew scriptures, New Testament, uh, I often will tell people, I think you have to read that as the character God. Ooh, that's good. Because yeah. it's not it's not as if God is saying and dictating these stories to people. It's people having real experiences, but also saying this is who we this is how we think about God. Right. So it's interesting to see the difference in the gods in Gilgamesh and and God in the Hebrew scriptures. There is a much more humane Right. Movement there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not these petty, vindictive, uh, fly off the handle deities. It is it is a deity in real time going, I, how do I deal with the fact that these people are killing one another and they're being so violent? And so that story then becomes, uh, I think, functions metaphorically as a way of saying when we choose to be violent toward creation and toward one another, we are actually undoing the fabric of creation. And there is a torrential flood coming at us. Yes. As a result. And right. if you can enter into the story at that level, which is how I think our ancient ancestors were thinking about it, um, then I think it becomes it opens up way more possibility. Then we can ask questions, which I do in the first chapter, is like what are the arcs that are available to us to stop the tide that's coming at us? Right. Like what is what does empathy do to transform human relationships? What does compassion do? What does responsibility do? And I think all of those things end up being yeah. transformative for how we live on the planet together. Yeah, I think that's a really good 
segue um, to talk a little bit about where we are here at the Wild Goose Festival, because um, this is a place where stories begin to do that transformational work, I think, with a lot of folks. I know when I first attended, you know, it was that scramble around to go see all of your favorite authors and podcasters and all of that. And then the second year, you kind of settle down and pick and choose and, and, and look for the side conversations that are always more interesting. Um, but all of those things are just stories, right? And, and so we're learning how to tell better stories. So how, do, how does a thing like the Wild Goose Festival inspire and influence the, the work you're doing, not just in the book, but just, you know, your work in general? You know, I, it's so funny. I, when people ask me about goose, and they say, do you camp? And I say, it's North Carolina in the summer. I do not. Uh, I, don't, I don't like to be this hot. I don't like to sweat. And yet you could not stop me from wild goose. And it's, it's honestly not even – I love doing talks. I love doing podcasts. I love being able to do all of that. But really, for me, it's exactly what you just said. It's these side conversations. It's, it's being able to talk to people who I see once or twice a year. But it's these side conversations where you hear things, and you hear what's going on in people's lives, and you hear their takes and interpretations and how they're shifting and changing. That Then you take that – you internalize that and take it back with you, and it shapes how you approach everything. Yeah, yeah. Right? We're, we're a very story-oriented species. I mean, exactly, yeah. Everything is narrative-based, uh, which is why when people talk about how do you change, when, when so many of us grew up in a fear-based religion, how do you change the narrative? Well, and that's, that's what you actually have to do. You have to begin to change the narrative. Right. It's right. not just give people different doctrines to believe. No, the doctrines that people believe are built on their understanding of the narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so it is a reshaping, a reimagining, a, re a reclaiming in a different way of, of these stories. And I find that um, since we're a narrative species, everybody around here has a story and has their take yeah, on the stories. Yeah, yeah. And even if they don't know they have a take on the stories, they have a take on the stories. And it just comes through in all sorts of organic, sweaty, beautiful ways. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, who would, I, I, I'm always like, I wish all the people I knew would be here yeah because it really is a, it's just a, we would run out of beer if we would run out that you and i both knew well we would need a wedding at cana sort of but that's a whole other story <laughs> that we didn't cover in the book. yeah yeah um you know that that kind of makes me think a little bit too about a conversation you and i had i can't remember if it was last year at the goose or, or the, the previous year um but but we were talking about how kind of evangelicalism has has really owned the public square when it comes to conversations about religion and Christianity, the, you know, the first people that the media interviews after any, you know, major event are always the leading evangelical pastors. Um, and, and that voice has become so toxic for so many of us, I think. And I remember asking you the question, like, where do you want to see progressives in that conversation? Like, do we need to reclaim the public square? And, and I think you said something that, that I thought was really brilliant at the time was, um, that maybe we should be satisfied with at least getting the phone call, right? And being another voice, right? So are you seeing, are you seeing that shift happening at all? Any, are we, are we starting to, to find ourselves as progressives back? Maybe not in the center of the public square, but, right. but at least having our voices heard. Maybe I, I think, I think that the media generally is starting to realize we exist. Yeah. Um, and you know, what I would say now is uh, I, I think we need more of it. Right, like we need to have more of a voice in the conversation, because I think the 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 the, um, the stark contrast between the conservative evangelical voice and the, what the rest of us are saying is 
like when you put them side by side, and I'm not trying to be pejorative, I'm just saying one seems reasonable, one doesn't. Yeah, yeah. One seems to value human flourishing. One is looking to take the rights away from as many people as possible, as quick as possible. And so I think we need this contrast to be present. Um, and I do think that there are more and more people who are listening. But I think one of the problems is the reason they call the you know certain people in the evangelical world is they know they're going to get a show. Right. And that they're going to get clips that they can put on social media. And people who are on the progressive side are going to then go watch the clips and be like, they're so horrible. And yet you're giving them clicks. The comment section blows up. Right. Yeah. It gets them what they want, which is exposure. And in some ways we end up, we end up self-defeating our own goals here, which is we need to, we should be a voice in the conversation of faith in the United States of America in 2023, because we are not some sort of outlier or some sort of, I mean, the main, the mainline church has been around for a very long time and conservative or uh, progressive evangelicals people. Well, we don't call ourselves that people who were evangelical and have become progressive Christian. Um, we are now growing in number. Yeah. And I think we have an important alternative message that may not get as many clicks in the sense of we're not we're not going to go out there and condemn a whole group of people to eternal damnation. But I think we can actually help solve or at least be a voice that helps solve some of yeah. the problems we're facing as a society. Yeah. And, and it feels like to me, there's also sort of this double edged sword with that. Right. Because I think you're right. Absolutely right. We we need to have a, a broader voice again, in the public square, show people that there's an alternative way of, of thinking about Jesus, of thinking about life and faith and all of those things. But but at the same time, like historically, the church has been its, on, at its best when the church has been on the margins, Absolutely. right? And so how do, how do you see us navigating that tension, like to work really well in the margins where people are being exploited, right, and oppressed and, and do the work there, but then also be able to speak to kind of the broader culture and mm -hmm. say, Maybe there's a better story, you know, yeah. we could be living. I think about. we have a great example in Reverend Dr. William Barber. Oh, amen. Yeah. yeah. Um, he has uh, he has done a brilliant and beautiful job of being a prophetic voice, calling our culture away from our addiction to guns and violence and hate. And at the same time is doing that work among people who have been victimized by those very things. Right. Um, after the after the shooting in Nashville in the spring. He held a, a moral Monday rally and uh, got to be a part of it. And just to watch him, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm zero percent Pentecostal. Um, <laughs> if, if I'm screaming, it, it, you should evacuate probably. But there was something about just being with him that made me want to to shout and to engage <laughs> and to change the world on that day. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. And yet he, he operates among those who he's serving. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, it's sort of the prophetic tradition. The prophetic tradition is to speak to the powers that be, to draw attention to the people they're marginalizing, and then call them to do it differently. Right. And that's not a calling everybody has. Um, that, that's not a – and every situation is not a, a situation everybody should feel responsible to speak into. But I think there are people who feel, yes, this is my issue, this is my situation – and it's my responsibility to call the powers that be and to shed light on it and to call them to justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that, I guess what I would say is the prophetic tradition is, I think, the way as progressives we should be approaching how we engage. Um, I, I do not think, regardless of who's in power, um, that the progressive, progressives should just become, for example, for the Democrats, 
like Republicans have been for yeah, the yeah, yeah. for the or for the conservatives have been for the Republicans, because that just creates a, a bigger issue, and we're still not getting justice done. So I think we should be supporting and encouraging where we see justice happening, but then we should be saying, but over here, we got to do something about guns, right? Right. And we got to do something about health care, and we got to do something about debt. Yeah. Um, and I think all of that can happen while we are also working and elevating the voices of the people on the margins. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things I love about Dr. Barber's work is exactly that. Every, every time I've seen him on one of the poor people's campaign videos or something, he will always say what he came to say, but then he will always bring to the stage yeah. somebody from the local community who is being directly impacted by the policies that, that we're talking about here. Right. He did that in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, and he's done it in West Virginia, you know, a, a dozen times, and um, and it's brilliant. And it that also makes me wonder, like, when we're talking about story and we're we're talking about you know people in the margins, where do you see the role of community in all of that? Because that seems to be sort of maybe the glue. Um, I, maybe that's not the right term exactly, but the, you know, there, there seems to be a role for community in this work, I guess. Yeah, I think if we're going to tell better stories, it, they have to emerge from the community. Yeah, yeah. Because the stories we love, you know, you just imagine at some point somebody sitting down by a fire and they begin to explain where everything comes from. And they say, as God began to create. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. These stories emerge. I mean, even the stories in the New Testament, um, most of the actual narratives we have didn't began probably at least some of them in oral tradition. Yeah. People yeah. passing these stories around and these stories shaping communities and the community shaping the stories. And so I actually think community is central to, if we're going to tell a better story, it can't just be me or you going out and going, I need a better story. Right. Here it is. Right. It has to be shaped and formed by the needs that are pressing in on the community. Yeah. 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 And you know, and somebody we were talking about, um, I think yesterday, uh, our friend Brad Davis, yeah, yeah, and, and Welch in, in the coal fields is doing a brilliant job of being able to s sort of tell a different story for right his yeah. community and with his community that is speaking to what is actually happening in the coal fields. Yeah, you know, I have to pay Brad royalties now that we mentioned. I'm sorry, his name you can just bleep his name it's out fine, when yeah, you uh, yeah, do yeah, the yeah. editing. No, y'all, Brad Davis. Um, I keep telling him he's the Gustavo Gutierrez of the West Virginia coal fields. The guy's doing. Amazing work. But yeah, I mean, the, when those stories emerge from the community um, rather than being imposed on the community, right? Yep. I think that's when you see the ownership in the story, the, the investment in the story, in the story, I mean, and that's that's where transformation happens, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I see this as a communal task. Now, the problem is um, with as Christianity began and then with the Protestant Reformation, we ended up with a very individualized faith. Yes. And the whole point of Christianity, if you'd asked me growing up, was to get me my own mansion in heaven. Right. When it began as a movement that was about the community, and it was about the well-being of the community uh, in the yeah, context yeah. of a brutal empire. And so I think being able to recenter the community as the place from which the stories come, and and the community is also the the megaphone through which the stories are told. right right yeah yeah right yeah. and and we've done a bad job at that in yeah, christian yeah. history we've turned yeah. it very much into we need individual voices well maybe but they need to be elevating and telling the stories of the community yeah and also sometimes they should sit down and just let the community talk yeah exactly i, I remember um when i was in seminary we were you know postmodernism was sort of the big buzzword and 
did a lot of studying on, you know, what that meant. And it, it always fascinated me that fundamentalist evangelicals were the biggest critics of the modernist movement, like the post-enlightenment movement that science can answer all of our questions, right? They That's where that movement arose, was yep. as a response to that. And yet, they end up using all of the tools of modernism, <laughs> you know, to spread this message. Well, we have all the answers. Just listen to our story and and you as an individual person, right? Um, and then they we'll, build big boats in Kentucky. And yeah, they, yeah. That, yeah, we have all the answers. Exactly. Come to yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of West Virginia and Kentucky and community, you're you're a man of the coal fields, and um, we we can't we can't move on without talking about a little Appalachian um, spirituality. Um, I, I I find it hard to believe that you don't have a Pentecostal bone in your body. You must you grew up in the Baptist holler, right, and not the Pentecostal. Not the holler, Pentecostal right? holler. Yeah. Um, now I did grow up Free Will Baptist before we were. We, I started out Free Will Baptist, then my family became liberal, and we became Southern Baptist. That was the move <laughs> for us. Um, and, and people off, always laugh because they get the joke there, right? Like free will bad Southern Baptist ain't nowhere near liberal, but that's how we didn't have the words conservative. We just knew we were right as free will Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, King James only you, when, we, when you go to church at our little holler free will Baptist church, my grandfather's the pastor of, you didn't know what you were going to sing, who was going to do it. You didn't know who was going to preach. The, my pop would just, it was all sort of the spirit, spirit led situation and so my pop would just guide the service and then say, brother so-and-so is going to preach. And sometimes it would be brother so-and-so is going to open and brother so-and-so is going to be cl- going to close. And then you would groan because you knew lunch was that much farther away. <laughs> and you would, then you would see brother so-and-so open a way too big, cartoonishly big Bible and start thumbing through looking for what he was going to say. Yeah. And so it was, but that's how the Holy Spirit it was, works. It's right? Isn't that how it worked? Yeah, and there yeah. was, even in the preaching, there was this way of breathing that was... Um, part of the spirit leading you yeah, yeah and and so there was you know we would have foot we had foot washing uh or washing washing it's, yeah, it's yeah, coming yeah, out yeah, now that i'm yeah. <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> you're exercising you just, me you just told me uh, at lunch that i'm your connection to appalachia so you're you, you are <laughs> i appreciate that you know you do we do foot washing once a, once a year with communion on a saturday night and only during that time or revival would did any shouting happen and, and so as a kid, I remember being scared to death. Like somebody would shout and I'd be like, is there a fire? Like, you know, do, I, do we need to make our way out? Um, so, you know, it was, it was sporadic. It would happen. Yeah. But it was never something really that my family did. So we would see other people do it. Right. And then once we made the transition to, you know, we, we left the Holler Free Will Church to the, the big city of Belfry, Kentucky. Oh, man. Southern Baptist Church. And bougie. Um, that, bougie that's right. <laughs> and they, uh, they, you know, we were the frozen chosen. Uh, is yes. the way to put it. Yes. And I would often tell people now, if you see me in a, in a gathering where there's music and I'm not clapping, um, it is two things. One, I have no rhythm. And two, it is just the last vestiges that has not, have not yet been <laughs> removed of that Baptist upbringing. Like I just never got taught how to clap. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it, it's so funny to me. And it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but there is in, in Southern Appalachian, Central Appalachian Coalfield, Southern West Virginia, Western Kentucky, that area, Western Virginia, there is, there's like that, there's, there's two brands, right, of very fundamentalist religion. Yep. There's that very, you know, don't do anything, you know, kind of Baptist brand of it. And then there's the screaming, shouting Pentecostal side of it. Um, yep. And then, but, but all of those guys would go to work in the coal mines. 
That's right. You know, after church and, and they had that in common. Um, and that kind of brings me to the next little piece I want to talk about with this, because we we were talking yesterday about this idea that some of us have been talking about that. If, if there is a new great awakening that might be starting to emerge here, I got this really strong sense that it's coming out of Appalachia. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like because that is a place where all of the intersections of oppression exist still in the world, right? The intersections of race and oppression, the intersections of sexuality and oppression, the intersections of uh, economic poverty and oppression, all of those things exist. Yeah. And I, black women in Appalachia, I think, are going to be our saviors. Right? Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious how you respond uh, to that yeah. idea after we, we talked about it a little bit yesterday. Yeah, no, I think I think it's exactly right. I sense it. I feel it. And. You know, I do. I think that there's going to come a moment, I hope, when our siblings who are believing billionaires who come and tell them, I know what's best for you. And what's best for you is to keep working for nothing. Yeah. Um, to, to keep doing what we tell you to do so that we're benef- we're, we benefit and we'll take care of you on the back end. Right, right. Um, and I, I think that eventually that's there's going to be a moment where we realize, oh, we're ne- there's never going to be the back end. Yeah. And, and we are always going to be, I mean, I grew, you know, my family was, my mom's dad was a coal miner. My dad and his dad were railroaders. My dad's brother-in-law was a railroader. I come from coal. Yeah, I, yeah, I come yeah. from this life. And uh, my dad worked for, he, he was the chairman of the union for Norfolk Southern when I was a kid at one point. And so just this idea of labor, and fairness in labor, and equity in labor, and um, those are values I grew up with, and they're values very much by a lot of folks in power that aren't being shared. Yeah, because it's way easier when you can take advantage of your workers. And yeah, if, any, yeah. if, if, if workers are being exploited, they're definitely being exploited in the coal fields. Yeah, yeah. There was, um, you know, in the early days of the the twentieth century, you know, when the mine wars were happening, which was sort of the birth of the American labor movement. Um, you, you had, you know the company gospel, right? You had the, the company town with the company store and the company church with the company preacher who would preach the pie in the sky when you die gospel to keep all of the labor force, you know, happy and satisfied. And yeah, my life sucks now, but there's a greater reward in heaven. Yeah. Um, but then you had the union gospel, right? <laughs> where where the coal miners would come together in the coal camps um, at night, you know, um, very much like the hush harbors. Right. Yeah. Of, of the, the period of enslavement. Right. Do you know how nobody talked? So um, the holler, the holler I grew up in, it's all coming out. Yeah, now, Joe. You're, you're welcome. Just, just, the holler I grew up in um, it was called Octavia Holler. Yeah. Now, but we called it Octavi Holler. Right. And um, it started out as a mining operation, but then eventually they pulled out and there's just people living up there. But every, to get to our to get from Williamson to where we were living up the holler, you'd have to go past Stone Camp. Okay. And it was exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But I can't tell you how old I was because we didn't talk about it. Right. We didn't talk about the camp and what that was years ago and how people were mistreated in yeah. the camp years ago. And when I hear you talking about the, the company gospel and the union gospel, I think very much of my growing understanding of Jesus is that he is preaching this gospel to disaffected workers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, who, why are all these people able to follow him into the middle of nowhere in the middle of the day? They're, they don't have they don't have labor. They're, yeah, they're not being employed. Their land has been gobbled up by these folks who are these householders who are taking and adding on field to field to field to field. You have displaced people who are like 
I always tell people, like, I don't take everything literally, but give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, I think are two literal right. prayers yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. We need food for today. And the thing that is keeping us from being able to take care of ourselves is this exorbitant debt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've never heard that gospel growing up. Yeah. I've never heard that gospel. Even in the coal fields. Right? Even in the coal fields. Yeah. Because for so long, the message had been pie in the sky someday when you die. And that became doctrine. That became orthodoxy. Yeah. And to question that, it made it seem like, and we didn't have this language back then, but that you were advocating for some kind of social gospel. The thing I learned growing up was if it's not social, it isn't gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If it's not affecting how the world is ordered, the, the fair distribution of goods, of, of the ability to live and take care of yourself and your family and your neighbor, like then it's not really good news. Is yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. I, it, um, I, I, I'm beginning to really uh, love the idea of Jesus as a first century organizer. Yeah. You know, um, well, and, feeding the 5,000, what is that? Yeah, it's exactly it's, it. You all sit down in groups and everybody open your basket and everybody gets enough. Yeah. Yeah. This subversive union talk here, man. I don't know what we're going to do with this. <laughs> this is good stuff. Um, so when we talk about, I, I kind of want to stick with this Appalachian theme, I think, because a lot of the folks that listen to this obviously are kind of from our neck of the woods. Um, where do you see hope? in that world. I mean, we've talked about Brad and the work he's doing, and he's obviously not the only one doing that, but where do you see hope coming out of that little neck of the woods? Gosh, that's a great question. Obviously people, Brad and people like him doing the work they're doing. And I also, am, I kind of, um, I, I try to be hopeful even when there's no reason. Yeah. Right. So I tend to err on the side of hope. And I just believe that enough people over time, if we can continually remind them of their worth mm, yeah, as a human being, as an image bearer of God, and that they should have enough food for today. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I go back to my hometown, I went back a year ago, uh, first time I've been back in a while, uh, and I went back and it was just, I felt this sense of grief mm. um, because the, the town has been so affected by the, the economics yeah. of the last 20, 30, 40 yeah, years, yeah. right? And I just hope if, if there can be a message that reminds people that they are God's children and that everything that uh, that means, yeah, which is they deserve enough for today, they deserve to be able to take care of their kids, they deserve to be able to take care of their neighbors, that they should not be exploited. Mm. That, um, And I think there's this, this outside of Appalachia, there's this uh, sort of looking down on yeah yeah or Appal caricaturing caricaturing or, yeah, Appalachia yeah. to realize actually these are some brilliant creative people right um talented in myriad ways um and that they we have a lot to offer the world with, yeah with our creativity with our intellect with our skills and I, I think somewhat we need somewhat of an Appalachian renaissance yeah where but I think that message of that to be Appalachian is less than Y'all talk funny mm -hmm. that you live in hollers and it's yep. daylight's scarce and <laughs> and you're backward. And I think that message starts to be internalized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. you start to believe we are getting what we deserve. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and that begins to explain why some of the highest overdose rates in the country are in the coal fields of Appalachia. Right? The, the because hope has just checked out. Right. Yeah. And so it's reminding actually that you've been told a lot of stuff about you. None of which is true. Yeah. 
that you are a gift to the world. You have so much to offer the world. And that you being able to be you and do you and live your fullest existence will actually make the world better for all the people who think you're worthless. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you have inherent worth as a human being. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I, think, I think that exactly kind of summarizes why I think a lot of us are starting to get this idea that that Appalachian uprising um, really is, is starting to happen and, and maybe we ought to be paying, uh, paying some attention to that. Um, I want to take a few minutes before we have to wrap things up and we've, we've got a few, I've never done a live podcast. I've never had an audience <laughs> for a podcast before. And if, you, uh, if you're not here seeing it, there are 10,000 people here 10, watching this. 10,000 right people. It is the largest the, podcast in the, the history of The entire Wild Goose. Wild Goose Festival has shut down for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Um, but I, you know, y'all have been sitting and listening. I'm just kind of curious if, if y'all have any questions for, for Josh that you'd like us to tackle here. Hi, John. Hello. Thanks for this conversation. It's been really great. Um, I missed the beginning, so hopefully you didn't cover this fully. Um, I'm a video game nerd. I think um, a lot of times about like, I wonder what is the final boss that we're like up against in our work together and in our struggle. So I used to think of it as like sin or the devil in my former tradition. Now I think of it more like sometimes I think of white supremacy, sometimes capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy. I'm just curious. Um, what 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 struggle animates like you you the two of you your work and like how do you understand the intersection or the relationship between the different forces that we are trying to have hope in the face of oh yeah interesting can i, can I have a confession real quick i'm a total hypocrite <laughs> and so i want to just name my hypocrisy before i answer the question because uh, capitalism has been decent to me yeah. just has and yet i think that most of our problems um so I think you can't talk about patriarchy and white supremacy without talking about capitalism because it's all been intertwined. Um, I mean, capitalism was built on stolen land with stolen labor. And so I think capitalism uh, is, the, is the big bad mm -hmm. that we have to figure out. And, and what's interesting about it is when people, like, when people talk about the market, it's like there's this thing that exists called the market and it's fickle. And it does stuff. And there's, it's, it's, there's inflation and there's just nothing we can do about it. And there's all this stuff and people are losing their homes and they're, they're losing, losing everything. And they're, as a result, they're harming themselves. There's all this bad stuff happening. There's just nothing we can do about it. Quick question. Who invented the market? Mm -hmm. did, it, did it fall out of the sky? Or did we create an economic system that was slanted to work for some and not others? Yeah, yeah. And, and yet, do we have within our tradition uh, uh, the, the seeds planted? both within the Hebrew scriptures and within Jesus, who is also a lover of the Hebrew scriptures. Right. Uh, do we have the seeds planted, which are, we need Jubilee. Yeah. We need a radical reset. Yep. And for people who capitalism has been good to, that sounds terrifying because they hear, we're going to take all your stuff and give it to somebody else. And actually what I think we need to be, make sure we're saying is really clearly is no, we just want everybody to have enough. We don't want anybody to go hungry. We want everybody to be able to have this thing, experience this thing called human flourishing, which is my two-word definition of the gospel. Uh, it's not a plan to go to heaven when you die. It is how to create human flourishing in the world while we live, which is for Jesus is the kingdom of God. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I um, I think what animates a lot of it for me is just growing up Appalachian, you know, and seeing. I'm like you. Capitalism has been very good to me, you know, and I and I can't deny that. 
Um, and, and it gives you sort of this perspective where you can say like, yes, I believe in this movement. I understand this movement takes time, right? That it's, it's a slow progression. Um, and a, a dear friend of mine, a black theologian told me once, um, that it's kind of a cliche phrase, but it always stuck with me that justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it is a true statement to say, yes, these movements take time. And, and we have to sort of wait. But if we're just waiting, we're denying justice. We have to be doing the work, even as we're waiting for the work to show some fruition, I think. Which is, I think, one of, and not just Jesus, but I mean, within the New Testament, it's, it's sort of an innovation with Jesus because it seems like John the Baptist's message was, God's going to break into history and fix it all. Yeah, yeah. Get ready. And John gets put in prison, and Jesus immediately is like, that doesn't seem to be how this is going to happen. And so Jesus' message is a message of collaboration and participation. Yeah. You know, sort of the without God, we can't. But without us, God won't. And I would actually say without us, God can't. Yeah. yeah. God is depending on human collaboration. We're getting into some open and relational theology I here. I love now. it. Wow. Tom Ord is going to be so proud of us. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks for the question, John. Any other questions? Hello, Amanda Webb Hello. from Remember That Time and Historical Podcast. Oh, I got a plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you were talking earlier about uh, the image of Appalachia being, you know, like worthless and throwing away, throw it away and how that affects people of Appalachia. I think a lot of progressive big city Christians who think of themselves as being hot stuff and saving the world also really aggressively have that view of Appalachia. Um, how do you... Fix that, right? Like, how do we help those folks understand the work that's being done? I think yeah. we say, stop your being ignorant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe find a nicer way to say it, but I think it's to say, like, the very people you're writing off, number one, do you care about justice? If you're a progressive Christian, I bet you talk about justice. If you care about justice, then you should care about the coal fields. Because what is not just happening now, but what has happened historically in the coal fields? has been one injustice yeah, after yeah. another. And so if you care about justice, if you if you value human flourishing, then you have to get rid of your your tropes and you have to get rid of your misconceptions and and you have to actually maybe learn about the issues and learn about the people and learn about the proud traditions yeah that have emerged from Appalachia and that are gifts to the world. Um, don't just voyeuristically enjoy our music and our pepperoni rolls, like actually, yes. actually get to know the culture that produced them. And you'll realize that what you, you know, the only thing people know is every time I tell somebody I'm Appalachia, from Appalachia, they're like, did you have shoes growing up? And did you drink a lot of Mountain Dew? Yeah, Those yeah. are the two questions I get. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, it was kind of a great place to grow up. Yeah. In yeah. some ways. I learned... All this, here, here's what they don't. Under, a lot of my family doesn't understand. The stuff that's within me now, that's driving me, it are, actually are the values they gave me. Yeah, yeah. They've just taken a theological shape that they mm, are like that. slightly uncomfortable with, um, probably because of the company gospel. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I actually feel like the, the more I care about justice, the more I learn about Jesus and what I think he was actually up to, which is leading this, inspired by religion, of course, but Jesus also wouldn't have caveated any of this. There would not have been religion, politics, and economics. 
I think Jesus is leading a movement of people teaching them how to resist the empire's brutality economically and politically. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, go, go to all the stories. Every time Jesus gets asked about taxes, he's like, I don't, I don't carry that. Yeah. I opted out of that system. I'm not participating in that. So you'll have to show me the coin you're talking about, and then I can give an opinion. Right? He's doing all this countercultural stuff. Yeah, resistance people, is baked in, right? Resistance is baked in. Yeah. And so the more I see, the more I understand the Jesus story, the more my love for my home grows. Yeah. Because I see that actually the, the gospel we grew up with has furthered the oppression of our people. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We need a radically different gospel that I just happen to think Jesus actually was presenting. Yeah, I think you're right. And also to the question, too, I think I think a lot of more, you know, urban progressives, whatever, I, I'm struggling for the right term, big city progressives. They, they look at Appalachia as so monolithic, like that's that's oh, Trump. Yeah. These same people are perfectly willing to learn about and deconstruct their racism, their homophobia. They're perfectly willing to do that work for other people who they also perceive to be liberal slash progressive, whatever label you want to put on it. But they don't want to do that work for people in Trump, white, white trash in Trump country, just to be really blunt about and it. Right? Can we just drop some truth here? Please. The reason it's Trump country is because of that perspective exactly. on Appalachia. Yep. Yep. It was not Republican country growing right. up. We were Union Democrats. We were Union up. Democrats yeah. growing up. And so in reality, the, the elites who have looked down on Appalachia, made fun of Appalachia, mistreated, like that's why it's Trump country. Because they had somebody, and it was before Trump, it was, you know, which the closest my dad will come to cursing is if you say the, the words Ronald and Reagan together in the same sentence. <laughs> um, but the reason it's Trump country is because slowly over time, Appalachia was continually ignored yeah. by people in power who had the ability yes. to do something to help people in Appalachia. Yeah, yeah I mean, the mind wars, you know, for, if y'all have seen the movie Mate One, um, it, it's a really nice, oversimplified, but it's a nice kind of picture of, of the climate that led to the, the mind wars. And um, there was an opportunity there for the powers that be um, to do the right thing. And they chose to hire private police and send in the army instead, right? The the governor of West Virginia, the captain of the West Virginia State Police, all kinds of people in political power could have said, no, let's not, let's not let this thing move to violence. But they were so sold out to the company that the human lives were expendable. We'll just we'll just bring in more people to dig the coal, right? Because the tree planted in unbridled capitalism will produce bad fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you have to do is you have to protect the bottom line. And if the bottom line means that you allow people to go uncared for, that's okay. If it means you allow police to trample on black bodies, that's okay. If it means you allow LGBTQ yeah. folks to have their rights taken away, that's okay because it serves the bottom line. Right. And the bottom line should be the flourishing of human beings. Yeah. Not how much money you're right. making. And that and that just brings it. That was the Jesus message, right? That's the Jesus and, message, and it's still relevant. Or if it's not, it should have been. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. It, it would be like you got Jesus wrong. Well, this is actually better than. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually do believe it is the Jesus I message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, I can't let you go without um, a little West Virginia. Um, Nor would I want whiskey. you to. <laughs> so I brought um, my friends that not a sponsor yet, but maybe we'll make a deal. Um, send them this recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Still Hollow um, Spirits in Job, West Virginia. Um, 
makes a lovely little rye. I know you got another talk up for, so I'm not going to overserve <laughs> you there. Well, I, you remember we talked about my Appalachian tolerance. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Josh, thanks again for being with me. Cheers, Josh. Cheers. Thank you, Thank you all for joining us for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. <laughs>